Like That, a podcast about things we like and occasionally things we don't. I'm Sally Smarkin, and I'm here with a very special guest, Gina Cadlick. I'm so excited you're here. Welcome to Oh, I Like That. I am so excited to be here, get to take our Twitter friendship onto a podcast. Yep. it's It starts with Twitter, then it goes to a podcast, and then we, I don't know, we co-author uh, an essay together, and then yes. maybe we... we then a book, and then we meet in real life sometime in the future. The real life is the last stop, though. That's the last it's, stop. It's the last stop on the Monopoly board. Hard agree. It's and and the only optional one. I will add. <laughs> yes, Gina, I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, I'm just going to tell everyone exactly who you are by reading your bio, um, because I've tried to introduce people casually before and it it goes it doesn't it goes sideways and I want everyone to know all the cool things about you so I'm just going to read this right from your website Gina Cadlick is a writer, astrologer, former lingerie boutique owner and recovering academic. Her writing has appeared in L, Nylon, O, the Oprah magazine, Allure, Catapult, Literary Hub, Autostraddle and more. A born and bred Midwesterner, she now lives in Brooklyn. And you recently published your first book called Heretic. I did. I did. It's going to be six months old here in a few days or something. Happy half birthday. That's so exciting. We're actually going to talk about your book uh, a little bit because I I loved it. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I I gifted it for the holidays to my mother-in-law. A strong choice. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but um, we always start every episode with a vibe check. Before I even get to that, though, let me just say, we're going to talk about astrology. You are an astrologer. Would you say you do astrology professionally? Yeah, yeah. And that I get paid to do it. And I'm also professionally trained in it. So yeah, it's one of, it is one of many things I do professionally. And it's also one of many things I have accidentally stumbled into doing professionally on my weird career road. So yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Well, I have like a lot of questions for you. Um, and I, I also have some, it's more of a comment than a questions for you, but we'll get to those later. Before we do that, let's do a vibe check. I'll just go quickly and say that the vibe for me is like very, it's very summery here in Philadelphia. It's a Friday. Uh, The vibes are just really good. What's not to like? Uh, So that's where I'm coming from. Where are you at? How are things? What is the vibe? For me, the vibe is very uh, yin and yang (laughs) this week, I will say, because the week started busier than I've had in a very long time work-wise. And yet the week has ended in a very summery, restful place because as we were talking before we started recording uh, here in New York City, it is also very, very summery, beautiful days. And in spite of the week starting really busy, I decided to treat myself and like go outside, leave my apartment, go to a museum and have just had a really relaxing end to the week. So vibes are also very good over here. I love that. I love it. I love that you like kind of started busy and are ending on a, on a nice note. That's delightful. Okay. Yes. You can buy, Oh, I like that merch follow. Oh, I like that on Instagram at, Oh, I like that pod. Things are getting really Dada over there, but it's a good time. Let's just get right into talking about like we're going to take the scenic route to talking about astrology because I first want to talk to you about your book. I love a scenic route. Let's go. 
your book is a, I like to have people on and tell them what their book is. And then they can tell me if I'm right or wrong. This is the most academia like. And then just to make it really academic, I'm just going to hold to my position and insist that I've got it right, regardless of whether or not I have. So your book is a memoir, but I feel, I think you, you also have a lot of like cultural, um, I, I don't know if you'd call it cultural criticism, but once again, I could just ask you to describe it, but I'm insisting on saying it. You have a lot of like history of like evangelical Christianity and just kind of Christianity in American popular culture, like going side by side. How did I do? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think cultural criticism is a catch-all, but you are obviously someone who has worked in that space and has a very particular idea of what that means. And so whether you are calling it a history of pop culture or cultural criticism, I appreciate that those are going to be two very nuanced and different things to you. So I, you know, I do not mind if you are approaching them differently. Also, the reader is always right in this instance. Oh, true. That is, that's true. That's a thing. Okay. So I feel good. I feel like I just got like an A. Um, But okay. Can you tell me like, so first of all, will you please tell, um, and we'll have a link to, in the show notes, we'll have a link to your website, all of your socials. Gina is an awesome follow on on every social media platform. Um, and also we'll link to your, to, of course, we'll link to your book, but would you mind just telling listeners a little bit about the book, what it's about? Um, and then I'm going to ask you like 50 more questions about it. It's really a story of rebirth. So if people like reading memoirs that are about following someone's, you know, total destruction of self and then rebirth Phoenix from the ashes, this is that. Like, if you need a one-sentence summary, that's what this is. The particulars of it, as you noted, like, structurally, narratively speaking, it's very much a hybrid blended memoir in that you have my personal story, which is that I grew up really conservative and, like, in the rural Midwest, very far-right, uh, Fox News-watching family, all of that good, not-so-good stuff, and then grew up, you know, married a pastor's son, got married incredibly early, in life, and then proceeded to realize I was gay while I was married. And by the time I was 25, I was divorced, coming out, um, leaving my marriage, but also leaving the church, leaving my faith, which I had been an incredibly devout believer, and also consequently losing that entire community, that it, all a lot of those people, a lot of my family, and really an entire worldview, which as problematic and arguably wrong as a lot of it is, was also what had completely constructed myself. So it's very much a, I am starting over from zero as an adult. What do I do now? And then kind of the, you know, journey into queerness, the journey into spirituality and a bit into witchcraft, if you will, uh, alongside a lot of other things. And that's very much the A story for the writers out there, <laughs> you know, the screenwriters out there. Um, and then the B story, as you described, is the blended part where I'm alongside that personal narrative, really explaining the history of evangelicalism, you know, the Trump years, the, and also, though, the cultural backstory and background, because personally, you know, I was writing this book in the wake of 2016. I was writing this book um, as someone who had been out for a while and who had left all of that behind already. Like, I wrote it a good long while after it had happened, honestly. And so I was someone who was out here, you know, in New York, getting all of these questions from my friends, like, how did 2016 happen? And I was someone who was watching it 
being like, oh, I know exactly how it happened. Like a lot of my family are Trump voters. My dad is a Trump voter, like, you know, who I'm no longer in contact with. And like, I'm like, I know, I know exactly how all of this happened. And so the, the B story very much came out of this desire to explain to readers who may not have that context or who had really just had like, you know, the fucking New York Times hillbilly elegy fuck shit. <laughs> like, you know, the sympathetic white working class voter, which incidentally, like, that's exactly who my family was. But I knew all of the other strains. Like I knew how Columbine had been treated in youth groups and how this entire youth generation had been brought up to be like raised as martyrs for the church in the wake of school shootings. Like there were all of these sm- small pieces that to me and to anyone who was raised that way were glaringly obvious that I wanted to braid into the story to make it much more obvious of like how we got here and how someone like me who is seemingly normal to a lot of people when they meet me actually has this really intense background and what it takes to leave it. I'm curious from a craft perspective, how hard was it or easy or what was the experience of like doing that braiding? I don't even know how many drafts it took to get there. honestly. And, and it really did come, I mean, I will say the, the braiding, the history and the pop culture and all of that. Um, the, the issue is that it's always my impulse to include all of that alongside the personal story. It was just the issue of making it much more structured. That took so much longer of how much of it to include, how to braid it, how to explain in my book proposal and to potential editors that that's what I was doing and that's why it was important. Um, Because in the first draft of the memoir that my agent and I took out, there was a lot of that in there, but we hadn't like called it out. Mm -hmm, We were mm -hmm. still trying to sell it as a straight memoir, if you will. And which to editors, they are often thinking of a straight memoir as kind of a, you know, for lack of a better example, like The Glass Castle or Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love or Cheryl Strayed's Wild or something that is, you know, it's really complex, but, you know, however problematic, like we could get into Eat, Pray, Love being, but like, it's a story. It is a story straight through and it's not going to have any of those tangential bits of criticism or a historical explication alongside of it. And editors, you know, even though hybrid memoir has existed for a really long time, like Audre Lorde was doing this back in the seventies, they get really confused (laughs) and they're like, what are you giving me? Like, how am I supposed to sell this? And so it took a while, it took a while to get there. And also for me to understand that that's what I was even doing, because at first I, to me, I was like, I'm just making how I got there, if you will, like legible on the page, which I eventually, I think, came to understand was a really queer practice because you see a lot of queer writers do that. Like it's very much a refusal of, to my mind, this is this urge to explicate how we got there. These are all of the other people who have also had these ideas. Like we're going to put ourselves in conversation with other writers on the page. Like we're not going to present our idea as being the singular idea or as being the only person who ever had this idea. Like Melissa Thibos does this. Angela Chen does this. Marcos Gonzalez does this. Joe Osmondson does this. Like all these people do this. And it's really a refusal of that genius in the tower. Like I am the sovereign on high. Um, and I, I don't know, it's my favorite kind of book to read and, and I love other people who do it. So I'm taking furious notes because I want to put all those people in our show notes. 
I'll just send you a list of all of their books that are on my bookshelf. And I love all these people dearly. And that's the kind of work that I am encouraged by that's in the current literary landscape is work that is in conversation and perpetually in conversation. Like, I know we talk about this idea of literary citizenship as being like, hosting readings or do or like giving blurbs to other people and you know volunteering and like yes it is all of those things but I do think it exists in the work as being explicitly in conversation with other people and building on those ideas together and not and really refusing the like narrative structures that would silo yourself off from other people. I love that. That I really appreciate that. I had never thought of it as like a particularly as a as a specifically queer thing, but I totally see how it is. And I also am so turned off by people who present their ideas as though they exist like in isolation from other ideas and as though they these ideas occurred to them like you know, came to them in the middle of the night in a dream, as opposed to like coming up with ideas because they've been influenced by others. And I never really um, have thought about it more than that, more than being like, man, that's a really annoying way to be. But now I see what you're saying. It's like an entire way of thinking about your work and approaching your work as like being in conversation, um, and having a context and having a history, which, uh, it does feel really queer. For very obvious reasons then, like with what you're saying, I think that it's very clear to see why publishers aren't necessarily drawn to, people who have that ethos or who write with that ethos because we inherently refuse the guru mentality that like we can be sold as like the one-way ticket to you know a reader who's like oh this is the one person you can go to for this specific answer they have the solution like none of us are gonna be a fucking like best-selling self-help author you know like because that's just not the ethos and how any of us are working and so it's a you can you can see how this idea and how these different ideologies about even how you're structuring your book can lead you to be marketed or bought by a publisher in a certain way it's really insidious so yeah yeah you know you're reminding me of um this interview i heard a long time ago uh with Melissa Harris Perry, who was, someone was interviewing her. Of course, I forget like every single bit of context, except this one thing. Someone was interviewing her and was saying like, you know, so-and-so referred to you as like the leading public intellectual of our time. Like, how does it feel to be referred to like that? And she was like, I, I reject that as like a way of thinking about what I do and what anyone does, because I'm not, I'm not ahead of anyone. I'm not, it's not, that's like a construction that I just, I reject. We're all, we're all sharing ideas and talking with each other and influencing each other. And I was like, actually, and I think that actually what she said was that it was a masculinist, uh, or like a patriarchal, um, Mm -hmm. construction. And I was like, Oh Mm -hmm. my God. Yeah. That is what it is. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, so let me just say about your book. So I have, when I, I used to be a community organizer before I was like doing whatever it is I'm doing in, in right in media, <laughs> who can say? And I, um, when I was in graduate school, I worked with a professor who, um, I went, I went to graduate school for social work, but specifically in community organizing. And I worked with a professor who was really interested in how the right has used, community organizing to kind of consolidate power. And he had this like theory that like, we think of organizing as a thing that 
people on the left do because we're like community organizing. That's what progressives do. Um, but he was like, actually, I want to do a bunch of research and see if my theory is right, which is that the right is incredible at community organizing and movement building and building a base. And so my, I was a research assistant and I did a lot of research and I was like, oh yeah, this is right. And so when I read your book, I felt like it was really bringing together all of those things that I had learned just by accident because I had a professor who was really interested in it. And I'm really glad I did learn it because I feel like when you're a progressive person or a liberal or a leftist in a certain part of the country, you have this, like, you can have this, like what you said, like what you refer to as like the New York times, like hillbilly elegy, like fuck shit mentality, which is that you're like, how does this even happen? Who are these people? They're voting against their interests and like all of this, like nonsense. And it's like, well, if you look at how this movement has been built very intentionally and very specifically, like it's not a mystery. And you also see how we're being out organized, we're being out like power consolidated or whatever. So, um, and I, and I feel like we have like a, a, a soapbox that I'm always on is that like, we, we don't really get political education in this country. Like we learn about specific heroes. It's like this person is like made civil rights happen. And this person did this, but we never learn about how change actually happens, which is by like building power and also understanding power structures. And I feel like what your book does so beautifully without being as heavy handed as I'm being right now, without being heavy handed at all is show all of that working, like show that these, that there are these structures of power and there are people in positions of power and authority and influence who want to create a certain kind of movement and build a certain kind of base. And I feel like that is so absent from, it's like, usually it's like you said, are are you going to write a memoir or are you going to write a book about the rise of the right? Because you can't do both. And it's, I, I, uh, I think a lot of people listening to this right now are, are like, maybe a little bit more likely to want to read a memoir um, than they are like a book that's just billed as a history of the right, but your book is doing both. And so I feel like it's, um, I mean, history of the right is too broad, but you, you catch my drift and that's, and I think that's really valuable because I, I feel like for like younger progressive people who don't necessarily like think about this stuff a lot, they're getting like a political education from your book, which I think is really valuable. Thank you. I do love what you said about how we don't get political educations in this country, especially in like public school K-12. Because that's just like, you're so right. It is built so much around that individualist mentality that I do go into a lot in the book around it's motivated by specific individuals who rise up above their circumstances and they do things with seemingly without any help from other people, without any prior movement history. Yes, It is entirely very like kind of that genius in the tower idea that, you know, we were talking about earlier. That's the ideology that's applied to our political history. It's like a neighbor, Abraham Lincoln single-handedly, you know, you know, like it's absolutely astonishing how intentionally U.S. history is shaped to strip any community or solidarity out of any of our historical movements. Um, yeah, it's, I, I really have nothing 
more eloquent to say than that. It's it's just I feel I feel like so much of my education as an adult person is both on learning that what I learned as a child, um, you know, especially growing up the way I did, but is also like simultaneously learning about like, you know, like I didn't know about Black Wall Street, like until I was in my fucking late 20s. I didn't know about like indigenous children being murdered until I was an adult. Like I didn't, you know, which is such a horrific, it's not an oversight. It's like, that's on purpose. Exactly. That's on purpose that we weren't told. And the maliciousness in that is horrifying. So- yeah. It, and also, like, I think um, I, I first of all, you know, if you're listening to this, what you couldn't see is that I was like nodding, uh, like frantically nodding at everything Gina was just saying. But the other thing is, like, I think when you don't have that, like, political education and that analysis of, like, how power works, you you sit around as like a leftist or a progressive or a liberal being like, this is also messed up like, how did it get this way? And what can I do? And it's like, it's, it's so much, it's so important to being able to make any kind of change to understand how this shit happens. And, um, something that I've seen you tweet about before is, um, well, we don't, I guess we don't really have to get into it, but I've like, I, I, you, you sometimes have like tweeted in the past about like, kind of like how, um, like liberals react to news of things happening in like other parts of the country. And that's another moment where I've been like frantically nodding at what you're saying, because I, I feel like you can sort of tell who has been like thinking about this and learning about this in like an expansive way and who is kind of caught in a little thing. And like, listen, we're all caught in a little thing at one point or another, like no, no shade to anyone who's like in a bubble, but there's just like a lot of, um, of like learning and understanding that like we all have to do if we ever want to make change and also want to not have like another day on like November 9th, 2016, where we're like, how did this even happen? I didn't see this coming. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think we're seeing that right now, even in Florida, like with what's going on in Florida and how on the one hand, you know, I have friends who, and I'm sure like you and, you know, like we all know people who like are from Florida who feel like it's not safe, like, you know, queer and trans folks who feel like it's not safe to go back right now and who are making, or who have queer and trans kids who feel like it's not safe to go back at this present moment. And also simultaneously knowing people who are queer and trans who live in Florida, Mm -hmm. like it's not, it's not a monolith and seeing all of this commentary coming out of all of this horrific legislation from DeSantis and, you know, the legislatures there, it's like, yeah, on the one hand, you know, yes, there are travel advisories being issued from queer organizations for the state. And at the same time, like there are people in our community who are there and also who cannot leave, like who do not have the resources to leave, who, you know, for a variety of reasons may not be able to leave. Like, so it's that whole, like, why don't you just leave that it, that specifically is the mm-hmm. thing that always gets me because it so ignores the reality, like people's lived reality. Or people who don't want to leave because it's their home. And also yeah. like some of the most exciting, like movement building is happening in the South. Like, like the, like the activists in the South are 
been getting us through the Trump years because, and they, and they always have, mm-hmm. and like some of the most incredible organizing is going on there. And, you know, so many people in the Northeast, um, right off all, I mean, whatever I, I want, I feel like now I want to just have a whole episode about this, but I did say we we're going to talk about astrology. I mean, we can, we also can just have a whole episode about this. Cause also I, I have a lot to say about activists here. I mean, maybe I shouldn't, but I could say a lot about, about the movement here, well, or lack of in, but well, I shouldn't, mm, let me go back. I have a lot that I could say about people who get on soapboxes without doing jack shit here in the city, like here in New York, because like, again, like you're saying, activists are in the South are so organized and so motivated and are actually getting shit done. And like, whereas here in New York, like, yes, there are some parts of some different movements that are and have been typically like honestly like a lot of black organizers here incredibly organized white leftists look what's happening in our state legislature it's like and like we have like fuck like fucking republicans being elected to congress like in a state that is so taken for granted as being democrat as being a democrat stronghold it is not it is absolutely not and establishment Democrats are basically Republicans here and are running the city ragged, are running upstate ragged, and could absolutely take a lesson and take a few lessons out of like Tennessee's playbook right now, out of Florida's playbook. I, but the hubris of New York, the hubris especially of New York City, like, mm, I have thoughts. So... <laughs> that's my oh I just I mean listen I again I can't say a lot because I myself am not I would never call myself an activist like I am not a community organizer so like I'm just someone who you know gets involved on a volunteer basis like and you know sends money and that kind of thing but like seeing them talk shit on the midwest and on the south and then while all this happens it's really frustrating yeah, I mean, I um, agree with everything you said. I uh, rubber stamp every single thing you said. I'm from New England, and I think I it would be really enraging if I were from the Midwest or South and was. And I do have friends in the Midwest who are like, "What is wrong with everyone on the coast? Why are they such assholes?" And and it's a great question. It's a really really great question. One of my friends out here um, who grew up like between a lot of different parts of the country, it was so funny. She was saying like this whole coastal war thing between New York and California. Oh my God, I died. She was like, this is a local problem. This does not concern the rest of us. This is not actually a thing. This is just like for people in New York and LA who have never been anywhere but New York and LA. This is their fight. The rest of us who are more cultured, who have been to more of the United States can just like sit this one out. That's a great call. I was like, yes, you're right. This is like a little local turf war issue that they're having. And like, I'll just sit over here and like, enjoy some food, not from either place. Right. No, that's a great call. I remember a friend of mine, like one of the many, like, some like argument on Twitter about bodegas or something was happening. And um, a friend of mine in, uh, in Omaha was like, this is like the most self-indulgent and annoying thing I've maybe ever seen on Twitter. And I, I'm so like Twitter pilled that it hadn't even like occurred to me that it was as ridiculous as he was saying. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is so annoying. We're all so annoying. And I mean, obviously I love New York or I wouldn't live here because 
with it being so expensive. <laughs> and obviously yeah. like I, you know, I wouldn't have lived here as long as I did if I didn't love it. And, you know, having like lived in Boston for a number of years before and having lived in like Iowa and Wisconsin before that, and also actually Minneapolis for a year as well. I do love Minneapolis. Um, but also, I don't know, to me, it's like having perspective. I think that's the big thing. I'm like, New York is, I love it here. I think it's a very special city. I don't want to live anywhere else, but also it's not the only place in the world. And I think that that's just the thing that's missing from certainly from a lot of the political debates and perspective in this country and also a lot of the cultural <laughs> debates and perspective in this country as well. I'm like, it's, it's not the only place. Um, but also to that point, we could talk about like the lack of general, like nationwide infrastructure in this country and how it is built to prioritize the coasts and how like the middle of the country has been allowed to be an industrial wasteland, like essentially uh, since everything you know, left for overseas. So like, mm-hmm. I, there's, there's a lot of there, it's a very nuanced situation there. Let's like, make our way towards astrology, because I, I do want to ask you like a million things, I guess, like, we, to like, to like, bridge the gap between what we're talking about now and talking about astrology. Can you just kind of talk about like, how you got into it, how you got interested in it? I'm really curious about like, how it connects, if at all, to your faith, or spiritual practice like growing up? So I didn't get into astrology until a number of years after I had left the church. And I got into tarot first, mostly as a way to encourage uh, what I would now call a mindfulness practice. Because like I said, you know, earlier, I felt so disconnected from myself, I was really starting over from zero, I really didn't feel like I knew who I was. And uh, I had, I had gotten a tarot reading because I felt, you know, I'd had my first queer heartbreak. And like so many of us, you know, I went, uh, I went looking for answers. Like so many of us, I had, uh, you know, gone looking for answers on and like found a group on for like fucking tarot reader downtown Boston. It was so funny. And I got a a tarot reading and that, but that really piqued my interest because of the way that the reader used the cards to tell a story. And I, I'm a storyteller and I, it made sense, like the, using the cards to tell a visual story, just, it clicked with something in me clicked with it. And so I got, I got a deck, started reading tarot, started journaling kind of, and that really helped to start build up my sense of self again, and just start, help me start to ask myself questions and like figure out what I wanted. And so like any good student, I started researching a ton and reading a lot of books and all of that. And a lot of books about tarot also talk about astrology. And I wasn't, I was certainly familiar with astrology because horoscopes are everywhere. Um, you know, we, we grew up with magazines on the newsstand, and all of which had horoscopes in the back. So like, it wasn't unfamiliar to me. Like I had a general sense that I knew I was a Capricorn or whatever, but I'd never been particularly interested in part because there was that tangential sense that this would fall under witchcraft, which for evangelicals is not okay, uh, even though it seemed pretty harmless. Um, but I was never particularly interested in it. Um, but after a little bit of, I don't know, just like over the years, I, it got to the point where I couldn't really ignore it anymore with my reading. And I just started reading for myself. Um, and 
started to research more about what it actually was beyond a horoscope. And it was like learning a language I'd already spoken. Mm, Um, Yeah, it was like learning a language I already spoke. It was like, oh, it's not just signs. The signs get their meanings from planets and the planets are really the core of it. And they all have these different relationships to each other and they all have these relationships to different things. And it just made so much sense. It also really appealed to the student in me because unlike tarot, astrology is a millennia old practice that has various traditions in different parts of the world. Um, in some parts of the world, like in India, it's an unbroken tradition. Like they've, you know, whereas in the West it's had, it's been reconstructed. It's gone underground for different parts of time because of Christianity um, suppressing it. Um, And so, but there's so much written history around astrology. We have so many ancient texts that have been translated. And so there's just so much to draw on and so much that, can you you, like you start learning but there are so many different techniques it's just a never-ending black hole of information it's really fascinating it's not a practice that's only intuitively led it's actually very technical it's very mathematical and it's very it's incredibly precise and there's also and in that sense I know a lot of folks get on the astrology isn't real tack that's fine I don't really care (laughs) Um, because to me I look at different patterns of like astrological alignments across history. And I'm like, oh, when these things are happening, there's revolution consistently pretty much all the time. And like the correlation is pretty overwhelming. And like, just as one example, like one of the correlations of Saturn Pluto alignments is is pandemics. And that happened around COVID that happened with HIV in the eighties. It goes back as far as like the black plague was a Saturn Pluto. Like there is just like really specific and that is interesting to me. So when you say the Saturn Pluto thing, can you say what you mean? Like exactly what that means? Yeah. So there was a conjunction meaning that, the planets were aligned. If you want to think about like Hercules, you know, Hercules, when the, when the fates are like the planets will align in this, like the Disney movie, Hercules. I've never seen it. Oh, okay. Well, if readers have, or if, sorry, not if readers, if listeners have seen the movie, there's this really, there's this funny scene like of the prophecy of Hercules defeating Hades and all of the liberties that were taken with the Greek myths, but the characters who are the fates say like give this image of the planets aligning in the sky. And a conjunction is one of those, basically a conjunction is the aspect that they're describing because like that kind of like exact alignment, um, like in the same sign, which would be the same section of the sky of the cosmos essentially. Um, and Saturn and then Pluto were aligned at this and having a conjunction in the same section of the sky. Saturn and Pluto were conjunct in Capricorn in 2020. It was in January 2020, I believe. And then in March, you know, everything kicked off. So horoscopes are like the way I think most people like understand astrology. Um, and but you said it's more than that. And you talked about that a little bit. And I'm wondering, like, one thing I know that you do from following you on social media is you, um, like, you talk about astrology 
for creativity or for writing for writers. Um, can you like, I, my question is just like, can you talk about that? Because that's yeah. really fascinating. And I kind of want to understand it a little bit better. Yeah. So when I say that I'm focusing on that, basically what I mean is that I'm focusing on the parts of the, on both the planets and then also the parts of a birth chart that have to do with what I would consider to be the writing practice. Right. And so I, in my newsletter, in my newsletter, I am still talking about every new and full moon and the eclipses. Um, also Mercury retrograde because Mercury is the planet that rules writers. So I always talk about Mercury retrogrades and bring up Mercury. Um, but I'm going to be tuning, I'm going to be considering them in terms of create, in terms of creativity, right. So in terms of where, so whereas other astrologers might just consider it more generally and like, these are all of the different keywords. These are all of the different things that like, for example, this upcoming solar eclipse in Aries next week that we're having next week. Um, like these are all of the different things that it might have to do with for a person. For me, I'm going to consider how eclipses tend to bring a lot of change um but also how they encourage boldness how the sign of aries like encourages boldness and creativity um and independence and i'm going to be considering all of that like through the lens of a professional writer and so considering like professional career changes that might be happening considering like personal changes with routine or with perhaps needing more independence that might be mm -hmm. happening I'm, I'm going to just take a much narrower lens. Um, and then when I do write horoscopes, I tend to focus similarly on the parts of a person on the parts of that, like hypothetical birth chart for each different sign that have to do with writing. So there are parts of a birth chart that have to do with creativity and pleasure mm -hmm. and like the erotic creative life. And then there are parts of a chart where the writing routine, like our, where our daily, like, rituals that we really care for happen, which I put writing routines there as well. Um, so I'll talk about that. Um, or, you know, the professional life, which obviously I'm writing, I'm gearing my work to writers. So I'm talking to people who are professionally creative in some capacity. So it's just a much more specific kind of newsletter. And does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if there is what you think is like one of the most common like misconceptions about astrology or aspects of astrology. So many. <laughs> I, I kind of paused there because I was like, oh my God, where do I I had start? a feeling there's like 50. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, I don't want to call this a misconception, but I think for me, what I run into a lot, not so much these days because I work for myself now and I work from home, but when I still was working at an office and a full-time job and I was writing and also doing astrology, you know, on the side, I, I just like ran into these like tech bros all the time who would be really challenging and like, well, prove astrology is real. I'm not fucking interested in doing a, like, it's not on me to prove that B I'm just not interested in doing it and see like, okay, live your, like, live your life. Like, I, I don't know what I think doesn't impact how you're living your life. So, you know, 
go off, I guess. Like, like, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't know that that's a misconception. I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable like saying what another person believes is a misconception, but I think that that's just the biggest thing that I run into mostly because if I say that I am an astrologer or do astrology to someone who I don't know, they cannot let it go. Uh, that is the biggest thing. It's like, if I say I'm a writer, that usually can get let go within a few questions because they want to know if I've written something that they've read, Yeah, which is an impossible question also. <laughs> I don't know if you run into this as well, like with the, you know, like I, I write, I do a podcast, like, oh, well, have I heard of, you know, that? Yeah, 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 but like, if I say I'm an astrologer, it's like an immediate conversational black hole that like we fall into and can never get out of. And it's really, <laughs> so I tend to avoid disclosing that to people who I've never met. Yeah, that's um, fair. But that's not really what you were asking. You were asking about misconceptions. <laughs> I think misconceptions would be that astrology is just the science, which I think is just more a misunderstanding than anything else. Cause I think we all start somewhere. Like we were saying yeah. with like writing and all of that, like we all, and you know, politics in this country, like we all start somewhere. It's totally normal to just be like, oh, I'm a this and that's all I know. Um, Cause it's so much more than that. And, and all the signs get their meaning even from the nature of the planet that they were born, like that they were born under the rule of essentially. So mm-hmm. um, like the season of it. So, um, so that would be the, probably the biggest one that I would that I would call out the other one being that anyone who runs a, that you can take meme account seriously right now, which is not necessarily a misconception about astrology, but because meme accounts kind of are the primary thing through which I think the vast majority of people are interacting with astrology these days, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> misconception I think about like what the signs even are what astrology is slash like who gets to say yeah yeah I'll stop there I have a friend who sends me who by the way like this is not a note to my friend if you're listening Jen I love when you send me astrology things I really do but she sends me astrology memes and like the Aries ones almost never, I feel like they never describe me because I, I feel like Aries are supposed to be, um, like bold and impulsive and chaotic. And I do sometimes I can be all of those things, but the memes always are like, like Aries is like in the center of the dance floor and all all this stuff like that doesn't speak to my, I made that one up, but like that doesn't speak to my being like someone who is like really neurotic, who is worried a lot, who, um, wants to spend a lot of time by myself in Mm. my house. Like, and, and like what, what's, am I constructed poorly as an Aries or are all these memes like messing with me? Like what's happening there? So two things, which is number one, I think we, again, I like a good meme. I, and if anyone follows me on Instagram, they know I, I love to share a funny Capricorn astrology meme. I'm I'm a Capricorn son and I really enjoy them, but they're punchlines. They're Mm -hmm. right. Like they're ultimately like meme first, astrology second Mm -hmm. punchlines that are never going to like honor or incorporate the whole of a person. And so this also, what you're saying though, Sally gets to this other, like more holistic misconception that, you know, if we get beyond the, like, you know, your sun signs aren't the, the the flip side of sun signs, aren't the whole of astrology. It's that Mm -hmm. you're also not just your sun sign, right? Um, Like it's that you have, 
that every person's birth chart ha- is constructed of every planet. <laughs> And and the most the most important ones being, you know, the per, what I would call the personal planets: your Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and then also your Ascendant and your Midheaven, which are points in the chart. Um, if you had led, if anyone had led with telling me how mathematical astrology was, I would never have gotten into this. If if people had been like, this is like a really, you know, like kind of spiritual, kind of predictive practice, but it's really math forward. I would, no, like I would have been out, (laughs) but you know, little did I know. Um, it's very geometry, uh, centric. Um, but yeah, cause I there are plenty of, you know, people with really strong fire placements that are shy and that are introverts. And it's because like that boldness doesn't necessarily have to manifest in this fucking capitalist, like we were saying earlier, masculinist culture as extroversion. The, the, yeah, cons- man, the conflation, it it's the conflation in so many of these memes of like bolt and fire signs were a really great example for this. Um, fire signs being like Aries, Leo and Sagittarius folks who are not extroverted, but the memes decide to capture and not all of them to be sure but the memes just often decide to capture them as be like that boldness and that courage and that desire for new shit and that desire for variety and that independence as like extroversion and it's Mm. like no all of those those character qualities do not have to exist within that way I know plenty of fire signs who have folks who have that as their sun or their moon or their rising sign who like move very quietly on the outside, but who absolutely are like risk takers and who are pioneers in their field. But you wouldn't necessarily know that by like just one conversation with them because they're not, as you say it, the first person on the dance floor. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I'm really, really, really risk averse, like incredibly risk averse. And so that's another thing that always shows up in Aries memes. And I'm like, I want, I just demand representation for risk averse Aries people. I mean, I think a really good example of this is actually there's someone, I, I love that you're an Aries. There are a few Aries. Aries is one of my favorites. I, I, I shouldn't pick favorites, but like two of the people who are the closest to me in my life, my actual sister, and then one of my very, very best friends in the entire world world are both Aries and one of them has a Virgo moon Um, and Virgo being a very particular earth sign a very particular like organized dot your I's and cross your T's like we are going to account for everything and the moon is so much about how we feel safe and how we feel safe in our body and our emotions and this person is not an especial risk taker very Aries in a lot of ways, like very, and also like incidentally also very extroverted, but like (sighs) risk-taking, no, 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 no. Virgo moon, big Virgo moon, like wants to feel safe, wants to like feel, you know, um, like, like what makes her feel safe is like having enough money in her bank account and like making sure that the electrician is coming to the house. (laughs) Like it's not, you know, like the big boldness shows up in like her fashion and shows up, you know, it's not necessarily like other stuff. Man, this is making so much sense to me. What can you like, what are some ways that like, do you have favorite accounts that you follow? Like I want 
like, I want to give people some ways of like getting into this that are that whose interest is peaked, but it's like all there is, if you don't really know what you're looking for, you, you do end up kind of on meme accounts, which like you said, they're like fun and funny, but it's, you're not necessarily maybe like getting the most holistic understanding. Yeah. So I only follow other astrologers. Honestly, I don't follow any meme. Well, I mean, I, you know, the occasional meme will get sent to me and I enjoy that, but I follow other astrologers and some astrologers you could, my favorite to follow who do post exclusively astrology content would be Diana Rose Harper. And her account is, um, it's a little complicated, it's, but it's called, it's Dida Machina and I'll send you the, Oh, perfect. Uh, the link to put in the show notes. And she is one of my dear friends and also one of my, one of the astrologers who I see regularly for readings and has an incredible, her Instagram is incredible and so full of incredible resources um, just to kind of, I think, come into a more holistic understanding of astrology. That's awesome. What, um, I've never had a reading, but my partner has, in fact, my partner had a reading with you. Yeah. And, um, it was like one of her favorite experiences like she's ever had. Um, and I was just so wondering, yeah, she loved it. She couldn't stop talking about it. Um, I was wondering like, what, what can people expect at a reading? Like what happens there? Do you need to know anything going into it? You absolutely do not need to know anything going into an astrology reading. But to that note, most astrologers who are booking readings um, will have a like first-time client consultation option when you're booking. And I do think that it's a good thing to share with them that it is your first ever reading because that will impact the way that they're explaining things. Mm. And they might explain things in a way that they wouldn't explain to someone who says, like when I book readings, I mean, at this point, I'm usually seeing the same people I've seen, but like... I will disclose if I'm seeing someone new that I do this professionally so they can talk to me a very different way than they will talk to you, which is a sign of a good reader that they can adjust their language and that they can use different metaphors and explain things in different ways, depending on the client's level of, of knowledge. Um, in a reading very typically, you know, especially if someone's getting a natal birth chart reading for the first time, which is, uh, you know, getting your own birth chart read, I would, I would very much expect, and it'll be different depending on who you see, but that you'll probably cover your, what's in your own birth chart. And then also probably some transits that you're having right now, transits being what, planets uh there because there's what the planets that you're born with right like the, the position that they the planets were at in the sky when you were born when you took your first breath it's kind of the birth chart is kind of like a snapshot of the sky if you will mm. and the position everything was in but then the planets keep moving because life is life everywhere and things stay in motion and the way that the planets and so much of astrology is understanding that like the way that the planets are moving in the sky continues to impact us here on earth and that the way that the planets are then what we say is transiting or which is just to say what we might say like is pinging your personal mm. natal chart like and where they are in it and if they are making um an aspect if they are um you know making a like geometric shape if you will to one of your personal planets like that's going to per perhaps bring a particular gift or boon um might like ease a path 
Alternately, sometimes it might bring up some particular friction or challenge to particular areas of life. And the astrologer will be able to talk about all of that with you. And also like call things out and kind of give you a heads up. Really what we're, what we are is the very, very boring weather people of the spiritual community is because we're just like, chances are high of rain. Chances are high (laughs) of sunny skies. These things might also happen. Here is your forecast for the next six months. This is what it might be. Tell us when you get there. (laughs) Like, you know, that's that's really all we're doing. That's awesome. I love that. And I actually think that like, um, so I I had a a friend of mine did a tarot reading for me a couple of years ago and drew the card, um, the tower. And I, and was like kind of explaining to me what it meant and how to understand it. And it really, um, she drew that card for me for like February, 2021 or something. And throughout that month, it helped me think about everything that was going, that was happening in my life in that month. It was like a very useful lens for me to like, kind of just like think through what was going on. And I kind of, I, I, I think about that a lot because like, for example, this week I had this week where on Monday, I went out, I got a coffee, came home, spilled it everywhere. Later that day, a dog like jumped on me growling. Later that, then like a couple of days ago, I I had a very like, just like weird unsettling interaction with someone. Like it was just like, and, and I was saying like, what there, there has to be something planetary happening right now. And I think that like, if, for example, I had had a reading so, like before this week, maybe I would have been given some sort of like, quote unquote, weather forecast that I could keep in the back of my head for the week and be like, OK, like I, I kind of knew that like things were going to be this like this way. So just like ride the wave and kind of get through it. It seems like it would be so useful to have that. I find it helpful and not and and also just in the sense that it's like always explicitly predictive of exactly what's going to happen, right? Because it's like, oh, these are the thing, these are the areas of life that this planet has to do with. These are the areas of life that the part of your chart it's going through, it might show up in. But like, there's so many. And so like, it, it helps it narrow a bit, but it also isn't going to necessarily indicate like exact, like, telling you kind of like if you went to see a psychic and they were like, this is what your future spouse looks like. You know what I mean? Like to use that example, Mm -hmm. like it's, I find it to be much more generous and much more, uh, it, it doesn't like put me in fear. And to my mind, any practice that puts someone in fear is like not a really a good space to be living in or practicing in. Um, I do talk to some folks sometimes who get really freaked out, like, if a Mercury retrograde is coming or if they hear that there's going to be some difficult astro weather as it were. And I'm like, that might be a sign to just take a step back from any astrology stuff that you're consuming because like it'll, the sky is always there. It'll be there. I mean, climate change pending, like it'll, <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll be there when you get back. Like, you know, I don't know. I, I just always encourage people to like take whatever, like, they need from it and not be afraid to like dip in and out if that's Mm -hmm. what is best. Like, you know, I feel like the culture, the hustle culture, internet culture we live in. So encourages people almost to like, if they get in, if they start to get into something, it's like, Oh, I have to become an astrologer now or Mm -hmm. something. It's like, no, just like 
take what you need, enjoy it. If your interest like waxes and wanes, that's just like the moon. Like you're doing great. Like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, so yeah, that would be what I would say to those folks. That's such a good, like chill way of like being in the world. You know, it's like, you don't have to make it your whole entire thing. It can just be like, you know, take what you need when you need it. And then you can like leave it and then come back to it. Um, I'm going to tell my partner you, you said that because the word chill, I don't think could ever be used to describe me. So I'm going to report back to her that you said that. Please do. Please do. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're my, um, you're my life coach for being more chill. Um, (laughs) are there, um, this is like a very, very specific question that I don't know if there's a good answer to, but I was just curious, have you seen astrology or astrologers portrayed in a way that you think is like accurate or nuanced or interesting in like TV or movies? Cause I I just feel like uh, it's usually, usually see astrology portrayed as like kind of very like, you know, flaky and people who are like, um, like touched by some otherworldly thing. It's almost like made fun of a little bit. I was just wondering if there was any, er, any examples that you thought were like good. Yeah. So I see people who are interested, like characters on TV shows and in movies who are into astrology is often, it's often a character trait that's given to them to portray them as flaky. Like you said, I I do not like that. I can't, I can't really think of any TV shows or movies that like are, you know, not to say fictional, but like that are fictional for lack of a better word, where I, that where there's an astrologer, because typically what you're seeing in movies that deal with the occult for lack of a better word. And I, the thing is, I don't always put astrology in as an occult practice because it historically kind of straddles a lot of different spaces. Like astrology used to be the same as astronomy and astrology used to be the same thing. Mm. Like, you know, they didn't get split into separate practices until very recently, historically speaking. Like when you go back and read astronomical texts, they also are astrological texts hmm. because it's like the, it's the, this is happening. This is why it's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It, so it, it, it's very, I don't know, like where it lives is very weird. Um, but I, yeah, you usually see like tarot readers or psychics in, in shows and movies, but I do think of, astrologers do get brought onto documentaries and onto like science shows a lot kind of to with that question like prove this is real if you will Mm. oh Um, I see yeah so like uh one astrologer who used to he used to live in New York uh I think he's in New Mexico now his name is Sam Reynolds and he he used to run the Zodiac Lounge here in New York it was a really incredible space um I went uh, a few times and oh god it was so great um but Sam Reynolds was on Bill Nye's show on Netflix and kind of like uh having be like guesting as the astrologer to skeptics and like trying mm. to in the like prove that this is real space and Sam is such a good person to have gone I think in as much as anyone could could have gone on and handled the uh, criticism and hostility um, decently. I think he's one of the best people who could have done that because he does uh, debate very well. Mm. And so that would be one example. Um, but obviously, like he was brought on to like be the astrologer who got pushed around. So totally, totally. That. And then I think of a show that TLC did, um, this is like several years ago now, I want to say this is 2017 or 2018, and it was called Stargazing. And my very dear friend and like basically kind of accidental mentor also, Mecca Woods was on it alongside um, uh, 
Jessica Laniato. And I think there was someone else as well. And like people would come on and get their charts read. It was very fun. Oh my gosh. This is reminding me though. Also, there are currently two astrological dating shows on, which they're both on Amazon prime and it's bonkers. I like one of them. I don't like the other one. Um, one of them is done by the Astro twins. And then the other one has Colin Bedell on it. And the, the one that he's on is a lot gayer. So it's very obvious which one I like. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, they have very different approaches, but like the idea is that all of these people come on these shows and that they're paired based on their charts. Um, and one of them, like they talk to just this AI thing, whatever. And then the, you know, the much gayer one, like the astrologers are like relationship coaching them. Basically, it's very, which is very interesting. That sounds awesome. I want to get, I want to get involved with watching that. Yeah. And like, I don't know, my partner and I really love dating shows and it's been interesting to watch those because like on the one hand, I'm always like, I want it. I always want to know the signs of like everyone who's on Love Island. You know, I always want to know what everyone's charts are, but at the same time, astrology as the sole basis for a dating show where not everyone has completely bought into the concept of astrology is really interesting to me. Um, mm. and it's kind of its own experiment. Um, that said, I will watch Colin Bedell in literally any show he ever chooses to do. And I hope that he continues to have all of the success. He also has a really wonderful queer astrology uh, book. He's, he's also a really good follow on social media as well. Why do you think that so many people are so like weird and challenging about astrology? Like, like, you know, it's not one of those things where you're like, where someone's like, I'm into astrology or whatever, or someone's like, just like says something about someone's sign. And then you have someone who's like, oh boy, it's so, you know, it's like, you know, it's just that whole like eye rolling condescending thing. And I, I was just wondering if like, if it, if it, if it was like the influence of Christianity in our culture that like anything that seems not Christian. I mean, certainly it can be Christianity. Certainly it can be that really mono, like monotheistic, you know, very judgmental, like anything that is not of God is witchcraft. Like certainly it can be that very, like in that very puritanical sense that uh, like that so much of American culture is very puritanical, even if the people who are involved in that puritanical judging are not themselves in any way, like associated with a church or their family is not faithful in that sense. Um, But I, I tend to, I think as attribute it more to a very post-enlightenment emphasis on the rational Mm. and which has been allowed to coexist with Christianity in this nation. Um, But which makes, it makes space for Christianity because of its political power. So it's, and, and even so is very judging of that. Um, But the judgment allotted to, anything that is seemingly irrational, which often is coded as feminine um, Mm -hmm. and that cannot be explained like any, and that means astrology. It also means basically like any spiritual practices whatsoever. Um, I also talk about this in the book. Like I, it's so ironic to me that the same kind of really like leftist people who are also atheists and really bought into this really hyper rational enlightenment thinking And they're like, oh, yeah, we favor land back movements and indigenous people should be in charge of like their own land, which, yes, but also it's like you do realize that 
many of them like the way that they treat the land is like the way that they treat the land because of a belief that the land itself is possessed of spirit and like that they build relationships with the land as in, an inspirited being and like like the the attitude is not one that like we have <laughs> um nazis like this royal white people we i feel like we're really coming full circle because we kind of started talking about annoying coastal white people and now we're, we're there again and I feel like we that's are. totally the thing I think I feel like that's like there's one takeaway from this episode um is that like that that's a really important through line is there anything that you want to mention before we wrap up that like you didn't get to astrology for me is a mindfulness practice and as I've both said and I think inferred I just hope that folks are doing what brings them into the closest possible relationship with themselves. Also with community, I really do think that's my, my one other thing I would say is that I really do think that a lot of uh, Instagram spiritualism, if you will, insta- like what, like which Instagram, spiritual Instagram, tarot, Instagram, meme, Instagram, whatever, it stops at the me of it. It stops at the individual. It's like, oh, cool. You left the church. Oh, cool. You left your shitty family. Like, oh, cool. You did this. And this is what you can do for you. Um, And it really fails to go into, it's like, okay, cool. Personal healing is great, but let's also go back into a community. Let's also reconnect with each other. Let's also connect with the other than human, whatever that looks like. Let's also be connected together and not just be in this individual silo where it's just like you and your apartment smoke cleansing your house, like, you know, um, So I think that whatever practices help bring a person into better relationship with themselves, but also the world around them is ultimately what's going to be best. And whether that's astrology or not, like, great. You know, it's just really about that relationship. Oh, I love that. What a great little button for this conversation. Thank you for that. That was awesome. Let's move on to a nice thing to end on. I'll do my nice thing to end on in case uh, you need a second to think about yours. So I had this week from hell, as I mentioned earlier, and part of the week from hell was that I had an interaction that like I just couldn't really like decode. I was like feeling very challenged to understand what was going on. And I was like, you know what I should do? I should ask someone what they think and ask them for their help interpreting this. And uh, I just, I texted a friend and I, I, um, have you, Gina, have you seen the movie Breach? I think that's what it's called with, uh, Ryan Philippi and, uh, Chris Cooper. Yeah. Okay. It's with Chris Cooper and Ryan Philippi. And basically it's from 2007 and it's a movie about like an FBI agent who might be a traitor or CIA, I guess. And there's this expression that they use, which I think is also in a lot of other like spy movies where they talk about being read in on an issue, like read that person in so that they like, this is a secret, but this person is read in, like they know the situation. So that was a really long explanation just to say that I read my friend in on this situation. And I was like, let me brief you. What do you think is going on? My friend totally like broke it down for me and helped me understand what was happening and also like why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And it was like definitely the most helpful, like incredible moment of my week. And also 
is like, it just like doesn't occur to me to do that. Like something happens and I'm like, I think I'm just going to feel like really bad and confused about this for like 48 hours and then it'll like dissipate. Um, and instead I like, I like, I phoned a friend, um, and it really helped. And that's my nice thing to end on phone a friend people. And by phone, I mean text. What about you, Gina? Do you have a nice thing to end on? I do. And it's that I have really been struggling with my reading habits um, lately. I think post book launch, because my, yeah, like we were saying, you know, my book came out about six months ago. And I have really been struggling to like, get back into reading consistently. And I've had these few spurts of like, ooh, big reading energy where I've been able to like really stay with it. But I haven't read a book in like a month or so. And then this week, um, I, I think maybe because it was a busy week, I really reached for reading as a way to turn my brain off and also just to be happy and like to um, reset. And so that was, that has felt really, I read two books this week. That's my like nice thing. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I know two books. I was, I'm like, who am I? Who is she? Like, oh my God. Who is she indeed? Do you want to say what the books were? No, no pressure to. No, yes, I do. They were, because they were both so good and I heartily recommend both of them. And the first one is a little older. And then the first, the next one came, just came out this week. Uh, and it's a friend's book. So it's, it's very delightful. But the first one was N.K. Jemisin's uh, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. It's the first in a trilogy. And it was just so, I mean, I love fantasy and I love N.K. Jemisin's work. And um, I loved uh, her city, We Became Duology. And, and so I've been trying to get into more of her work. And this was my first next journey on the nice. N.K. Jemisin train and it was just so fucking good um and then the next one what is a YA novel um that is very like Pride and Prejudice but in Mexico City um but uh contemporary and really really funny and it's called Viva Lola Espinosa and it's by my very dear friend Ella Ceron and it's so good it is so good and listen YA novels and me are very hit and miss like very hit and miss. And sometimes, most of the time, I really don't like them and lately. And so obviously my friend was writing one. So I'm like, I'm going to read your book. And she's a good writer. So I had faith that it was going to be good, but it was great. And I read it in one sitting, which like very rare. And it was so fucking funny and it was so heartfelt. And I cried and like, I just... If you like need a YA novel to fall in love with YA novels again, please read this one. It was so good. I'm I'm really excited you say that because I didn't realize that you and Ella were such good friends. Um, b- big, big announcement for the podcast. Ella is going to be coming on uh, soon to talk about, um, well, I'm not going to reveal what we're going to talk about. We will talk about her book. Um, I am currently reading it as well. Um, it's really fun. I also have a kind of ambivalent relationship with YA novels. I'm having a blast. Ella absolutely rules. And I look really forward to having her on the podcast. Well, I fucking love that I got to do this little soft launch. And that's so great. Totally unplanned. Um, So I'm really psyched about that. Man, that is a really nice thing to end on two books in a single week. My hat is off to you. I mean, we'll see if I can duplicate it again this year, TBD. But listen, (laughs) Even if you don't, you've read two books in 2023. That's fine. That's just fine. Exactly. 
Well, Gina, it was so awesome to have you on. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for letting me ask you all, all kinds of things about astrology and just and be like a total like beginner about it. And also thanks for letting me just be like a huge fan of your of your writing and your work and like just just like uh, say all these say all these things I've always wanted to say to you about reading your work. Well, thank you so much for having me. And also as established, we are now to like the second or third phase of our friendship. And the next phase is like co-writing something. Hard agree. Maybe we start a YouTube channel together. I don't know. We'll see. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Oh, I Like That. If you haven't rated us and reviewed us, why not do it? Uh, follow us on Instagram at oh I like that pod. You're also welcome to email us at oh I like that pod at gmail.com. You can follow me at Sally T on Twitter. You can follow Gina at Gina Cadlick on Twitter and also on other in other places like TikTok. And uh, I'll link to all your socials in the show in the show notes. Definitely read Gina's book Heretic. Uh, this episode of oh I like that was produced by Sally and Gina and edited by Aram. Amber Seeger designed our logo. Hey, we did it. Thank you so much. This was so fucking fun.